from the Miriam Institute. This is the Israel Defense and Diplomacy Forum podcast. Hello, friends. I'm Benjamin Anthony, co-founder of the Miriam Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Israel Defense and Diplomacy Forum podcast, or IDDF, as we like to call it. It's your bi-weekly update on all hot-button issues relating to the state of Israel. Before I turn the program over to your hosts, I'd just like to ask all of you to be sure to subscribe to the podcast and to leave a rating and review at wherever it is you download your podcast from. Doing so will help us to reach an ever-wider audience. And I thank you in advance of your partnership on that front. Now, friends, do you remember those old tenets of respectful and substantive dialogue, discussion, and debate? I certainly do but they all seem to be under attack. And that's why, in this era of stifled debate, the Miriam Institute is really proud to produce the IDDF podcast. It's hosted and led by Chuck Freilich, a former Israeli Deputy National Security Advisor aligned with Israel's political center-left. And he'll be joined by Danny Ayalon, Israel's former ambassador to the United States of America, who's aligned with Israel's political center-right. Now, sometimes the two of them will agree, sometimes they'll disagree, but at all times, they will be bringing their storied track records, internationally acclaimed expertise, and enduring commitment to a secure and thriving state of Israel to the fore for the consideration of you, the listener. They'll discuss, spar over, and analyze matters of real consequence for Israel's future. I'm absolutely certain that you'll find the IDDF podcast as fascinating and thought-provoking as I do. Please remember, wherever you are politically, wherever you are physically, you can engage with Israel via the Miriam Institute. Be sure to visit our website at www.miriaminstitute.org to learn more about all of our initiatives. And now, it's over to your hosts, Professor Chuck Freilich and Ambassador Danny Ayalon. Hi, Danny. Good to be back. Same here, Chuck. Last time we started a series on the U.S.-Israeli relationship. I imagine we'll probably do about four podcasts on the topic. And just so the listeners know what they can expect, well, we actually started last time and we'll continue this time with a historic overview of how the special relationship developed. We'll then talk about the sources of the relationship, the fundamental pillars, the shared heritage, strategic interests, and American domestic politics, uh, the so-called Israel lobby. We'll talk about what the special relationship really means, or when we say that term, what are we talking about it? And it's uh, so much more than just military aid. It's uh, strategic cooperation. It's strategic consultations, it's the American commitment to Israel's qualitative military edge, strategic diplomatic cooperation, and more. We'll talk about what it means to be pro-Israel today. And then five absolutely critical questions, one of which is whether the price of the remarkable alliance with the United States has been that Israel, and we'll talk about this, whether it has lost a significant part of its freedom of uh, maneuver, in effect, its independence. Whether the U.S. could even, su- whether Israel could even survive today without the United States, 
what some of the limitations are to this relationship, cases where the two sides have failed each other and not lived up to the commitment. Where is the relationship heading? And I believe we are both deeply concerned about that. And then we'll try and talk about what we can do to preserve this relationship for the long term. But first, let's maybe give a brief recap of uh, the historic overview that we talked about last time. Yes, Chuck. Right. I think it would be important to um, to um, repeat uh, a little bit uh, what we started, uh, just to make it seamless in terms of the historic uh, progression of uh, the relationship. And it is hard to believe, as uh, from this vantage point of uh, our days, that uh, in the beginning uh, the United States. Uh, uh, did not see Israel as a um, an asset, but rather a liability. And uh, in fact, if we talk about the first phase of their relationship, it is true that uh, President Truman was the first one to recognize Israel's uh, uh, independence, de facto independence, after uh, Ben Gurion's uh, declaration of independence, uh, July, uh, July, May fifteenth, uh, nineteen forty-eight. Eleven minutes uh, after that, and by the way, if, uh, we we talked about last uh, podcast about Biden's visit here. Biden uh, mentioned that in his speech. That 11 minutes That's after right. the declaration, the, right. the United States was the first one. Yes, this is very, very important, uh, symbolic, even more than symbolic. But that was pretty much it. And uh, prior to this um, recognition of Israel by Truman, there was a major debate and dissent among the American uh, bureaucracy, basically the CIA, State Department, uh, their ambassador to the UN. Pentagon. Uh, yes, the Pentagon, they did not want that. They thought that, A, uh, Israel is too weak, and at that time uh, we were 600,000, around 650,000 Jews surrounded by 100 million hostile Arabs. I mean, there was no match. So I, I guess that uh, objectivity would, uh, would um, point out to, uh, you know, Israel is not going to, to survive or last. And uh, the, the second thing was, uh, which is actually coming out of this first argument that Israel will not survive, is that um, the United States will have to come to the aid of the Jews here in Israel in order to prevent another Holocaust. And uh, that was also not very appetizing after World War II for the Americans to send more boots on the ground here. And, so and, uh, the, uh, and the Cold War is just getting underway. Exactly, exactly. And, of course, the oil... Uh, right. of the Arab countries was also a major factor. So it is uh, really almost an act of God that Truman did prevail over all these argumentations and over all the strong elements in his bureaucracy and in his administration against it. But um, after this one um, major, major uh, uh, move of, of recognition, uh, it was rather cold relationship. And uh, outside of a very minimal uh, economic aid, there was an embargo during uh, the independence war and not a, a single uh, bullet or uh, gun uh, was sent from the United States here. Uh, actually, uh, quite uh, amazingly, the, um, the the weapons we relied on was from the Soviet bloc uh, <clears throat> at the time. But this is for a different, uh, um, I would say, podcast. We can maybe we should do a podcast about the Soviet involvement here. Okay, you know how they ex you know how they expected maybe the socialist government of Israel 
to be part of the their block how they, they were wanted disappointed to, pretty quickly of course they wanted to uh, uh, root out the the British here and that that's why they supported the, the state of Israel in the beginning but uh, this is a different story in any case uh, when we go back to the United States which is our best uh, friend and ally and the most important uh, uh, element I would say of Israel's national security and uh, and foreign policy uh, so this was rather uh, grim and the first uh, if we want to add more at what you mentioned, Chuck, and maybe it, it is worth uh, uh, repeating, was that in 1956, when Israel took the Sinai, uh, it was Eisenhower who really brutally leaned on Ben-Gurion to uh, give it back and... Um, forced him to withdraw. Basically forced him to withdraw for something which was not even worth uh, the, the piece of paper, the guarantees. On, on the one oh. hand, it was for... Uh, it turned out that way in 1967. Yeah. Yes, because there were two uh, two um, demands of Ben Gurion, or they, this was the compromise that was basically uh, was was set up was that with Israel's withdrawal from the Sinai, uh, for the first time in history, the United Nations created a peacekeeping force, UNEP, uh, and that was to actually be a buffer between the Egyptian forces and the Israeli forces and to maintain peace and prevent war. It did not stick because in 1967, Gamal Nasser, Gamal Abdul Nasser, the Egyptian uh, president, told them to leave and they left in a hurry without even a protest. That was right. really quite miserable. And the second thing was, the second, uh, let's say, assurance that Israel received was a guarantee from uh, the United States that it will uh, guarantee for Israel's the um, uh, a free navigation in the waters and that uh, the Suez Canal will always be open for Israel. And the Red Sea. And the Red Sea. This, of course, also was blocked. Uh, Abba Ibn, as the uh, foreign minister, foreign minister of Israel in 67, went over to Washington. At that time, it was uh, Johnson was the president. Dean Rusk was the uh, secretary of state. He tried to evoke this guarantee. They did not accept it. And that was the point where then Israel went ahead and launched the attack in 67, after it turned out that LBJ was unable to live up to Eisenhower's commitment. Yes, and, and Chuck, I believe you pointed out in one of the podcasts, wasn't the last time, some few podcasts uh, ago, that uh, the Armada, you know, this... Uh, um, special, uh, uh, you know, navigational uh, uh, force that was uh, promised by the United States uh, was not about to be because the U.S. was too much engaged in Vietnam. Vietnam. They didn't have the wherewithal, they didn't have the political will. And again, as uh, Yogi Bear said, it's not over till it's over. <laughs> and you made sure it was all over in a good way. Well, I'm glad we pulled it off. <laughs> In any event, uh, we're now in the mid-80s, and we're seeing the institutionalization of the relationship. And in this special edition of the IDDF podcast, Chuck Freilich and Danny Ayalon caught up with Dennis Ross. He served as the Director of Policy Planning in the State Department under President George H.W. Bush, the Special Middle East Coordinator under President Bill Clinton, and was Special Advisor for the Persian Gulf and Southwest Asia, to the former Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton. If you look historically, strategic cooperation was not the natural instinct of the United States. If you go back to the Truman administration, 
the entire national security establishment was against the declaration of statehood. It was not until John Kennedy that the, the reference to a special relationship with Israel was first stated. John Kennedy is the first one to talk about a special relationship with Israel. Uh, and Lyndon Johnson sort of builds on it. We see some change during the Nixon administration, but even Nixon himself uh, withholds for the first week uh, assistance to Israel during the 73 war and then then you know unleashes a huge amount of, of support, but it's mostly not because of a special relationship, but because he says American arms can't lose to Soviet arms. The real change does take place during the Reagan administration. Uh, until that time, the evolution was such that the approach to Israel was shaped entirely by saying, okay, they're a democracy, we share values because of that. But there was a sense that somehow Israel didn't serve our interests because it complicated life with the Arabs. In the Reagan administration, for the first time, there was a sense that no, they're a strategic asset to us. Uh, and that began a process of transforming the relationship. The first two years of the Reagan administration were very difficult because of differences over a variety of issues, not the least of which was the war in Lebanon. But 1981, in the aftermath, 82. In the, 82. In the aftermath of that, uh, beginning January of 1984, what became the institutional basis for strategic cooperation was established. Uh, literally, the, the Joint Political Military Group was established, and under it became a whole panoply of other uh, structural, institutional uh, arrangements that tended to embed us with each other in a way that had never been the case before. Even administrations that didn't necessarily buy on to the Reagan presumption of Israel being a strategic asset, like for example, the George H.W. Bush administration, he still built on the institutional framework of cooperation. So what you ended up having over time was a, a belief that as a shared democracy, we had values in common, but also we had fundamental strategic interests and Israel served them uh, in the region. So my view is that from the Reagan administration on, the character of the US-Israeli relationship was transformed. Uh, and it became uh, something much more fundamental because it embraced our interests as well as our values. Uh, and obviously today there are some challenges to that from the left in this country, uh, but you, the mainstream American public still views Israel through the lens that they are one, they are America's friend in the region, they're the one true enduring American friend in the region. So that really leads directly to the next question that as I was gonna ask, because it really has on the one hand become this extraordinarily rich and varied relationship with the different pillars today, not just the normative one, but the strategic one. But we've seen a major decrease in support on the democratic side, more on yeah. the, the far left, let's say the progressive camp. There's been a decrease of support even within the Jewish community. In the last presidential elections, we saw, I must say to my great dismay, three leading candidates, Senators Warren and um, 
Sanders and Mr. Buttigieg, all three for the first time creating a link between Israel's West Bank policies or the Palestinian issue and military aid, which was always the the sacrosanct part of the relationship that right. nobody ever brought up, uh, nobody ever created a linkage between. So are, are we talking some bumps on the road here? We've had them in the past. Where's the relationship heading and what are some of the things that we could do to preserve it for the long term? I think it's a, a critical question. Uh, I do think the relationship became a uh, more challenging one because of the Trump presidency and the embrace of that presidency uh, by Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, no one here would was going to question whether you should have, whether an Israeli prime minister should have a good relationship with an American president. The question was, do you, do you embrace that president uh, who is such a polarizing figure in the United States that anything he was identified with, almost by definition, was opposed by those who looked at him? One of the reasons that you saw such a change in the Democratic Party was because of the, because of the Trump approach and what seemed to be uh, an increasing in Israeli embrace of Trump. Trump in domestic terms, at least for Democrats, and especially the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, was seen as a fundamental threat to American values uh, and to the essence of our, of our system. Uh, and to see an embrace of him, that created an impulse for many to look at Israel through a different light. There, there was a kind of syllogism that emerged, which was these progressives and Democrats, even Democrats more generally, said Trump is bad, uh, Israel likes Trump, therefore Israel is bad. So you created, because of the, because of the Trump presidency, uh, you created what was a, a dynamic that led to certain candidates wanting to separate themselves to show how different they were from Trump. And one way they could do that was to focus on Israel. And I don't mean to, to say, all of this was a function of Trump and the Trump-Netanyahu relationship, but it crystallized it. It made it, it. it made it more tangible. Now there was something. There was something beneath the surface, uh, and that is, look, the Palestinians have presented themselves as a victim. Uh, they have presented themselves effectively as a victim. As I often used to say to them, you know, when you make being a victim a strategy, the one thing it guarantees is you will always be a victim. By the way, you are a victim. The question is, what can you do to no longer be a victim? But that victimization has also uh, been part of a narrative and it has, it has embedded itself here. Uh, and in a way where uh, Israel tends to be seen increasingly through that lens, uh, at least on the part of the progressive community. Still the mainstream of the Democratic Party uh, and the mainstream of the American public don't view Israel through that lens. But increasingly, when you look at the coverage of Israel uh, in the media, uh, it does, everything is, that's the kind of point of departure. Uh, so the answer to your question is first to say, this is not a bump in the road. This is a problem and it can't be dismissed. It can't be treated as if, well, the, the game is cooked and so we, you know, there's nothing we can do 
don't even make an effort because then you you leave the political space entirely to those who want to portray Israel in a negative light. Uh, so what is necessary is first, as the uh, as the Israeli government has sought to do over the last year, reach out to the Democrats in a way that was not done uh, in the preceding period. Number one, Lapid so, did a or, lot of that. Look, I I often said the. Israel has always been an American interest, not a Republican interest or a Democratic interest. If you identify with one party, and I don't care which, because you could, you know, earlier the the pendulum was different. Uh, it was there were the Republicans who tended to be very negative uh, or more negative towards Israel. That the pendulum has swung. But when you identify with one party, you're going to face a problem because sooner or later, uh, you you know the pendulum will switch again. So first things first, make sure you have outreach to both parties. Secondly, highlight all the areas where in fact, Israel represents something important for humanity uh, and where the, where the progressives in this country themselves put a premium, climate change. Look at everything Israel is doing and can do uh, to cooperate. Uh, and to, to foster change there. Uh, play up the imagery, which is, not a, which is a reality. It's not just an image. It is quite extraordinary to see Arab states engaging in outreach to Israel, and we have those here who want to boycott Israel. So the, you know, for me, as someone who, whose role has been to try to end the Arab-Israeli conflict, it is remarkable how much the changes are taking place because Arab states see Israel as being a natural partner in terms of dealing with their needs, not only the threats, but also they need help on water security. They need help on food security. They need help on, uh, on health security, on cybersecurity. And Israel is cutting edge in all these things. Uh, look, Israel, when it comes to issues like water, uh, Israel has perfected drought-resistant crops it leads the world, people know it leads the world in, in drip irrigation technology, uh, but it, it also leads the world in terms of the use of wastewater to extend and expand the scope of water availability. Uh, it, is, it is creating now the ability to grow wheat and rice, two staples with a fraction of the, these are water intensive crops with a fraction of that. Focus on all the things Israel is doing to to address what are the needs of humanity now. Do outreach in that regard and don't ignore the progressives. Reach out to them, have, have a dialogue with them. Absolutely. Listen to, you know, okay, they have complaints and criticisms. Say, here's how we're trying to address them. At the end of the day, Israel will, how it deals with the Palestinians is ultimately an imperative for Israel. It's not because anybody tells them they need to deal with the Palestinians. The Palestinians aren't going anyplace. So Israel needs to have a policy there, you know. In the, you know, I've said uh, to Israelis and, and to the, uh, you know, I do uh, as part of the Jewish, the JPPI, the Jewish People Policy Institute, uh, we do a, a annual assessment, but we also do a briefing to the Israeli cabinet. And I said most recently uh, to that cabinet, I said, look, uh, there is a problem you have to contend with. And that is when you take two states off the table, you leave only one state. When you leave only one state as the outcome, the Palestinians will say, fine, 
one person, one vote. That will resonate not just with progressives here. So my answer to that is two states for two peoples. You don't have to accept my answer, but you have to have an answer. And today you don't have an answer. So this is, again, there's an issue here that Israel has to contend with. But part of that should be engaging in, in a dialogue with how it approaches these issues, but also where it has, where it makes a major contribution, uh, I said, to humanity. But one of the, you know, Israel has a company called WaterJet. They create these units that, that draw out of the humidity in the atmosphere, uh, drinking water. Each unit can produce 1,500 liters of drinking water. So there's a deal that has been struck with the UAE. So the UAE is marketing this, not only through the rest of the Middle East, but also in Africa. Again, this is Israel. The, the Israel that is not portrayed uh, in a way it should be portrayed here, Israel needs to be presenting itself in that way. That's fascinating, Dennis. I think you uh, raised a lot of really critical points in very little time. But let me take you to what was in the past. Maybe it's no longer as important, but in the past was considered one of the ways of ensuring the relationship for the long term. And that was the possibility of reading a reaching a defense treaty, a yeah. bilateral defense treaty. Yeah. So first of all, the question is, um, well, there's been a lot of resistance to the idea within the Israeli defense establishment, but a couple of premiers, uh, Rabin at one point, um, Barak at one point, were interested in doing it primarily. And Netanyahu. And Netanyahu, Netanyahu right, was. right, right, with yeah. Trump. Uh, primarily, but in the Rabin and Barak sense, it was primarily as a... Uh, so a huge strategic benefit for Israel, which was to try and ease the pain of a peace deal. On the U.S. side, there was clearly far less enthusiasm. And I think Clinton was the only president who, under certain circumstances, might have been willing to do it. In, a, in the context of a peace agreement, he might have been willing to do it. Yeah. So is it a done deal? It's, in other words, it's, it's off the table. Is it something that under certain circumstances we could still think about? And is it realistic from an American perspective? I think it is. Uh, I wouldn't dismiss it. Um, I mean, one of the extraordinary things uh, is that, as you know very well, we've had a whole series of MOUs which don't just bind us together, but they, they create a set of, of assurances and commitments as well. Now it's a two-way street, but still, if you, if you added up all these MOUs, they certainly create something that looks close to an alliance, even though it's not formally one. Uh, the, you raise the issue of if there was ever a peace agreement uh, with the Palestinians that this might be part of it. It was something we very seriously considered during the Clinton administration. Uh, it was something we actually raised. It wasn't raised uh, by your side, it was raised by us, but it was raised as a question. Would it help if we had a, a formal alliance? Uh, and the answer was, interesting enough, even with Netanyahu, that it was of real interest, even at that time, uh, during in his first go round as prime minister. Uh, I have always felt that uh, it, it, it binds us in a way that is more formal. 
and therefore there was a value in it. The hesitancy on your side was the fear that it would limit your freedom of action. Uh, and it's not, that's not a trivial concern on either side because there are times when the US will want to retain a kind of plausible deniability uh, over what Israel does. Uh, and, and there are times when, you know, as I, I will say, during these times when we discuss this, I said, look, it's at one level, there is no significant military action you're going to take where you won't in one way or the other have raised it with us. Maybe you don't come the minute before and say, okay, we want your approval. You're not going to do that. Uh, but you will, you will preview why this is something that might be necessary. We will talk it through for sure. Even in those, even those discussions, we will, the U.S. will raise concerns it has, and then those discussions are also designed to say, okay, how could this be done in a way that mitigates some of the concerns we have on the one hand, but on the other, under what circumstances would we be drawn in? So there is a, so much of what would exist if there was a, a defense, a formal defense treaty already exists in terms of the character of the relationship and the kind of discussions that would take place in advance of, of operations. Uh, you could also negotiate this in a way that doesn't preclude your freedom of action. Uh, and as I said, there may be times we want plausible deniability, but we're not unhappy that you do it. So I don't, I don't say it's off the table. Um, I do think it's, you know, it has to be a mutual interest. It has to be something that on the Israeli side, there's a feeling that there's enough to be gained that it offsets some of the concerns. Uh, I can see an American president, again, someone like Biden would have been actually a very interesting candidate for this because Biden is so emotionally connected to Israel, uh, much the way Clinton was. He's, I mean, I see he and Clinton being very close in terms of their instinctive relationship with Israel, including neither one of them ever wanted to have public differences with Israel. They, they saw it. I mean, in Clinton's case, he felt we were Israel's one true friend in the world. And if we had a public difference with them, it actually made Israel's deterrence weaker. Uh, it made peace less likely. Biden's instinct is, look, they're, <laughs> they're, our, our, they're our friend. We can have differences with them. You know, he, he used to say with Bibi, he'd say, I disagree with everything you, I, you say, but I love you. I mean, that's, you know. He said publicly, we drive each other crazy, but uh, we love each other, right? I mean, it's a, this, these were two, this president and Clinton were two presidents for whom this would have been natural because it, it fit with their, with their fundamental orientation. It probably takes, again, another president who has that kind of a, an instinct to want to raise this. And then it depends on whether on the Israeli side, there is an interest. I see a benefit to it. I see a benefit for one reason. Again, as it relates to Iran, I want to affect the Iranian calculus. I want them to understand the kind of risks that they run. I think they believe today still that we won't act militarily and that we will prevent Israel from acting militarily. And I think that reduces deterrence. I think it also reduces their incentive uh, to work out in the end the diplomatic outcome to the character of their nuclear program. It makes it less likely rather than more likely. So do the circumstances, the conditions for doing this, 
Um, well, first of all, it requires the right-minded uh, kind of president. Is it still dependent on a peace treaty? Can it happen independently of that? Some other type of circumstances that might make it possible? I, I mean, I just raised Iran. Yes, I think it becomes more important in the context of Iran. Uh, the peace treaty was always the, the, the driving force in the past. And the reason was obvious that Israel was taking risks by, by the kinds of withdrawal, the kinds of commitments it was making. And it needed a level of reassurance, not only in terms of guaranteed, guaranteed military supply of equipment, uh, which has become, by the way, more of a collaborative effort anyway. In some ways, you know, every weapon system we, we kind of jointly develop now, you know, we, we create a common set of commitments because of it. So it's, I think it, it may be less driven by the need related to a peace treaty, and it may be more driven by the reality of what Iran represents and the fact that so long as uh, Iran is going to be led by the kind of leaders it has now, the threat from Iran is going to go up. It's not going to go down. I think a peace treaty, uh, a defense alliance, not a, not, I think a defense alliance sends a very powerful message to the Iranians. It began, it, I think it, it creates thresholds for them that they don't presently respect. I think that would be, I think it is an important thing to do to try to affect some of their choices and how they think about some of their choices. So that leads to the next question. And uh, this may be our final one. I think you just have a few minutes to go. Yeah, Correct. I've got, I've got five more minutes. Five minutes. So it's increasingly questionable whether there'll be a nuclear deal with Iran. Yeah. There may still be. I, I've always believed that breakthroughs happen when things look the worst, the, the bleakest. So maybe there'll still be, be a deal. In any event, we've only got four and a half more years of the primary limitations on the Iranian nuclear program. Another five years of not insignificant one. So nine and a half years is not nothing. It's, it's important. But in the grand scheme of things, it's also not a great deal. I think the Israeli side wants to talk very much now about the plan B, what we do on the assumption that there won't be a deal. What do you think the primary consideration should be now? What should we be doing in the foreseeable future? I, I think even if you get back in the JCPOA, we need a strategy of deterrence. We need a strategy of deterrence, which we don't have uh, right now, at least not one that is a coherent one that you can see and feel and that the Iranians see and feel. You need it because even if you're back in the JCPOA, you're very unlikely to get a follow-on deal. Uh, the maximum amount of time you're buying is what you suggested. The Iranians, if they come back into the JCPOA, they're agreeing to defer a nuclear weapon. They're not giving it up. Uh, and, and because of everything they've done in the last two and a half years, they've qualitatively changed the character of their program. So their capacity for breakout come the end of 2030 will be, it'll be zero. They'll have zero time breakout. Their ability to create a turnkey capability for moving to a weapon, I think will be 
significantly greater. So unless you unless they know that if they do that, they risk their entire nuclear infrastructure, the odds are we're going to face an Iran that is a turnkey away from a nuclear weapon. I realize breakout and turnkey capability are not the same thing. The problem is we can track more easily what they're doing when it comes to the question of creating fissile material as a weapons grade. I'm less confident that we, we have the same handle on being able to track what they're doing to fully be able to weaponize. So we need a deterrent strategy for that, even if we're back in the JCPOA. Now we need a deterrent strategy for what they do in the region if we're back in the JCPOA, because they're gonna have a significant infusion of additional resources if they're back in the JCPOA. Uh, and as many people like to say, if they can cause all this amount of trouble in the region when they're under sanction, imagine what they can do when they're not under sanction. So we need to be able to have a, a deterrent strategy for that. But we also need a deterrent strategy if there is no deal. Because look at where they are now. They're enriching the 60%. Uh, they're accumulating enriched material to 60%, which as you know, is close to weapons grade. They are just, they have, they, they now have a number, I think four or five cascades of advanced centrifuges that are operating. The IR6s are enriching uh, to 20%. Some, they're moving towards that turnkey capability without a deal. So the difference between if you have a deal, you buy some time, so you still need deterrence for later on, but you need it for the region now. But if there is no deal, you're gonna need it sooner rather than later. So what is the key to it? First, they have to know that they, they risk their entire nuclear infrastructure, which they have invested in, developed over the last three and a half decades. They need to know that's, put at risk. Now today they don't believe it. So you're gonna to have to engage in a set of behaviors that demonstrates these are not just empty words. Uh, some of that can come by changing your declaratory language, which is still just words, by saying you're gonna put your entire nuclear infrastructure at risk. Some of it comes from communicating privately that we mean what we say, but then we should be running exercises that demonstrate we're rehearsing. We should be running exercises under in central command where we rehearse air to ground attacks against hardened targets so they can see it. We should, in, in any time we're hit by a, an Iranian proxy with our, where our forces are in Iraq or in Syria now, uh, we should take a page from the Israeli book. You know, in the middle of the night, hit a target that is in Iran, but don't take credit for it. They'll get the message. We have to, if we change our rhetorical posture and make it tougher, there have to be companion actions that demonstrate these are not just empty words. Uh, I have been, as you know, I've been a longtime advocate of providing Israel the massive ordnance penetrator uh, and leasing B2s. The reason being, if they think that we're, even if they think we're not going to act, they know you will. And this sends a signal we're prepared to support it. I, I push for, but I probably it's not gonna happen. I wanted President Biden on this trip to, uh, to agree to the Israeli request to accelerate the delivery of KC-46s. These, these would refuel, they give Israel much more of a refueling capability and they can't, they have Israel's military option vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Iranian nuclear infrastructure is much more limited if they don't have these tankers. 
again, the message it sends to the Iranians is, okay, you don't want to, you don't want to pursue a diplomatic outcome. You're going to leave us no choice uh, but to support a military action. If you want deterrence to work, the Iranians have to become convinced that they're running a great risk, which they don't think they're running right now. Uh, and their approach to the JCPOA reflects, in my mind, a sense they still think will concede more. That's why everything they're doing in advancing a nuclear program, they think that we, we don't want to use force, and they realize this is creating a pressure on us to do something beyond what we're doing. So they think we'll come back and we'll concede in the end. I think they're wrong. But I think the administration would make uh, an unacceptable diplomatic outcome more likely if the Iranians came to believe that they were making the use of force against them much more likely. Okay, well, uh, Dennis, really, uh, thanks. Uh, that's been great. Hi, everybody. I very much hope you're enjoying this episode of the IDDF podcast as much as I am. Remember, you can submit your questions and comments directly to Chuck and Danny via their email address at IDDF at Miriam Institute. Org. I'd also like to invite you to visit the Miriam Institute website at www.miriaminstitute.org. There you'll be able to see the missions of the Miriam Institute and to invest in our work by way of a tax-deductible donation. Each year, our organization operates three gold standard tours to the State of Israel. The first, ISAP, brings cadets from the U.S. and Canadian military academies to Israel for a 16-day deep dive into the strategic and policy considerations of the country. All of those cadets will go on to serve as officers in their respective armed forces. We also bring a delegation of active U.S. Army officers for a 7-day tour with the same focus, and we also bring about an exclusive tour of the State of Israel for elite graduate students from around the world, all of whom are bound for careers in policymaking and shaping. Together with our top-tier written, recorded, and filmed commentary, the Miriam Institute is your one-stop shop for all things Israel. Wherever you are politically, wherever you are physically, you can engage with Israel via the Miriam Institute. And now, it's back to the IDDF podcast with Chuck Freilich and Danny Ayalon. Dennis mentioned the joint political military group known as the JPMG, which is at the level of the Director General of the Ministry of Defense, in other words, the senior bureaucrat, and the uh, Assistant Secretary of State for Near East Policies. And JSAP, the Joint Security Assistance Planning. Uh, group is formed, and the JEDG, the Joint Economic and Development Group. So we're beginning to form the alphabet soup group of mm -hmm. bilateral strategic consultation forums uh, that are established over the next couple of decades. We then have uh, now Defense Minister Ahrens and Secretary of uh, Defense Weinberger signing another memorandum of understanding for joint planning in the eastern part of the Middle East, in other words, excuse me, in the western part, in other words, our part of the region, not the Persian Gulf. The U.S. isn't willing to talk to Israel about the Persian Gulf yet. But in addition to the joint R&D of the previous um, MOD that I mentioned between Brown and Weizmann, uh, 
there's now talk about uh, joint planning, about prepositioning of American uh, weapons and munitions in Israel, joint exercises. In 1984, the first visit ever of a chairman of the Joint Chiefs to Israel, uh, Chairman Vesey, takes place. Israel is now defined uh, as a strategic asset and later a strategic partner. So you see that the terminology is beginning to change. Uh, we see American funding for the American Merkava, for the Israeli Merkava tank, for the Lavi aircraft, uh, Israel's domestically developed fighter aircraft. That's uh, really a topic for another conversation, what happened with the Lavi. In 1987, the U.S. designates Israel for the first time as an MNNA, a major non-NATO ally which is a means of facilitating technology transfers, to, uh, the most advanced weapons. In, at that time, in 1987, there were only three, four MNNAs, NATO's, uh, non-NATO allies of that kind of stature, and it was a big deal for Israel at the time. In the meantime, just about every uh, Tom, Dick, and Harry has gotten MNNA status, and Israel has, uh, its stature has been upgraded uh, using different terms, different names. In 1988, another MOU on strategic cooperation. In 1989, the prepositioned material that the U.S. had, sta had uh, stationed in Israel under the previous strategic uh, MOU, well, now Israel can use it. Originally, it was just to be used by American forces in the event that they ever need it. Now Israel can make use of it as well things are really beginning to take shape. Yes, and I think that uh, chart brings us to the, uh, to the 90s, the early 90s, the first uh, Gulf uh, War. And uh, here it was a major, major uh, American operation, both uh, on the diplomatic front and, of course, on the ground. Uh, at that time, uh, Bush the father, uh, Bush 41st, uh, was the president with his very, very active and able Secretary of State, Jim Baker. And um, once it was, uh, I mean, while it was obvious that the United States will not allow uh, Iraq and Saddam Hussein just to engulf and uh, invade another country, Kuwait, without any uh, um, consequences, it was very important uh, for uh, the United States to lead a coalition, and a coalition not just in the diplomatic front, where uh, uh, countries would uh, galvanize together in the condemning uh, uh, Saddam and Iraq in the United Nations uh, uh, General Assembly, and of course in the uh, uh, Security Council. It was also obvious that this will not deter uh, Saddam Hussein, and only by force uh, you can dislocate him uh, from Kuwait. And this is when a major, major operation started with uh, General Schwarzkopf, which was a four-star American general who uh, was the, um, the commander of commanding the central of, command. Of, exactly, and right. And he was the one who was also the CO, commanding officer for the entire operation. But it was very important for the United States that since... It was going uh, for the first time in history, Chuck, and this was also a major uh, dilemma for the Americans. For the first time, they were very uh, uh, frontly 
um, uh, meeting or uh, fighting an Arab country. And it was very important for the Americans that they will not do it alone, that they will do it with uh, other Western countries, of course, you know, NATO countries, European countries, but, and that was also a major, major element for them to include in this force Arab countries, whether it was uh, Egypt, uh, even Syria, Gulf countries, even Syria was there, uh, Saudis, uh, Bahrain's, Moroccans, all this was very important, so it will not seen as U.S. vis-a-vis Arabs, it seems like as uh, defenders against aggressors. And in order to, um, to do that, they needed, guess what, Israeli cooperation. And uh, especially as Saddam Hussein realized, and he tried to drive a wedge in this uh, coalition, certainly between the United States and the Arab countries. And just as the war started, just as uh, the first... Uh, strike of uh, American airplanes on command and control uh, systems in uh, Baghdad and other places in Iraq, Israel received the first SCUD missile on its population. And this was the first time in history, actually, uh, that repeated itself until now, uh, unfortunately, but this was the first time Israel uh, airspace was invaded by uh, a missile, and uh, during, uh, I mean, throughout this uh, war, uh, more than, I mean, 39 SCUD missiles actually were launched over Israel. And uh, the natural reaction here of the top brass of the military and also what the, the uh, public demanded was um, revenge. And not only revenge, uh, operations to prevent further uh, launching. And that meant that Israel should do some major um, military operations in the uh, western Iraqi desert. But here comes a, uh, the, 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 the complexity. Because it was obvious that Saddam Hussein's uh, exercise or his aim was to pull Israel into the fray, into the war, so that the Arab countries will just stay away, and maybe this is the wedge that he was uh, thinking between the Arab countries and the United States. He was and trying to disrupt the coalition. Absolutely. And here, Israel, under Shamir, Isaac Shamir was the prime minister, um, everybody here, uh, Moshe Arens, Moshe Arens, which was the uh, defense uh, minister, he wanted an operation. Dan Shomron, which was the chief of staff, Deputy Chief of Staff at the time was Ehud Barak. They all planned and wanted a major operation of Israel in, uh, in Iraq. And Shamir, after um, thinking long and long and, uh, and hard, decided, well, Israel should bite it, its lips, uh, I guess, uh, bite the bullet and not react in order for the, looking for the larger strategic geopolitical uh, picture where uh, this allowed the U.S. to continue uh, unrelented with the coalition, unhindered, and with the Arab countries continuing the, to, to follow the American uh, leadership. I think that war um, uh, won a lot of uh, brownie points 
in Washington uh, at the time uh, because this was a major sacrifice, political sacrifice, and of course, uh, uh, from a military point of view, uh, some Israelis were hurt. Uh, luckily, uh, it wasn't a, uh, a, uh, a mass destruction here uh, in Israel, but this is an, because of the um, inefficiency, I would say, of the Iraqi missiles. Uh, at that time, if I can inject here a, a personal story, I was in the foreign ministry, but I uh, left for my uh, reserve duty uh, in the in the IDF. I was an, uh, an um, armored um, tank officer, but at that time, they took us to uh, detect chemical warfare, you, uh, chemical substances. Oh. Yes. So we were uh, actually we were uh, they put us uh, they, they in the in the some major junction in the Galilee uh, to uh, go and uh, hunt for every fall of the scud to make sure it wasn't chemi- any kind of uh, chemical or biological uh, warfare. Luckily, it wasn't, and some of the scud missiles had a warhead which only consisted of some cement. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but in any case, um, it was a, it was very tough time here in Israel, and here the cooperation, first of all, on a strategic political level, uh, is uh, increased. But also on the ground, this is the first time the U.S. is sending uh, some American troops, although in defending uh, capacity, Patriot battery uh, missiles actually to uh, to intercept the incoming uh, scuds. Um, in hindsight, this Patriot, which was an early version of the Patriot, was not very effective. And unfortunately, some of the, the casualties here uh, came out of uh, fallout uh, from the, the Patriot mm-hmm. missiles and not uh, the Scuds. But again, I would say this is a, a major turning, oid, turning point. You know, we are coming now. This is the sixth turning point as, uh, as we count. And that really uh, put uh, Israel together with the United States um, as intimacy. I think this introduced intimacy into the relations and also thinking ahead and uh, strategizing ahead. For instance, when it comes to uh, missile defense, this was the first realization that uh, the Western countries must uh, start a special uh, capability of missile defense. In the 80s, uh, everybody was uh, lambasting uh, Reagan when he talked about the Star Wars, um, uh, which in hindsight, he was right about creating... Actually, it was Reagan when in the Star Wars, actually, he he talked about the first, what we call today, Iron Dome to uh, deflect uh, incoming missiles. But uh, here, um, we started uh, together to, to plan... The, the Chetz, the Aero missile, mostly uh, Israeli uh, development and know-how and American uh, finances. And if we just uh, fast forward to where we are today with the Aero 3, Aero 4, I mean, we have the state-of-the-art uh, missile defense, which the United States, of course, very much enjoys as well. Just for those listeners who may not be familiar, Arrow is for intercepting... Uh, ballistic missiles, whereas, for example, Iron Dome, which I think more people are familiar with, is for short-range rockets, um, and there are a couple of other systems 
but the Arrow was the primary one for incoming missiles, ballistic missiles. I just want to make a comment or two about what you were saying about the first Gulf War. I'm not sure that Shamir really intended to attack. Uh, and so he, there, there may have been a little bit of a game here where Israel is threatening to respond to the missile attacks, and by the way, with great justification, but really it was a way to get the U.S. to do more to prevent them in the western Iraqi desert. That's one thing. The other point is that, yes, there was, there was very, very close strategic consultation here, and it's a tur- it is a turning point. But it's also one which shows the limitations to strategic cooperation until a couple of years ago, in the sense that the U.S. succeeds in the first Gulf War, unlike the second, in really putting together, as you were saying, this broad international coalition of uh, states from the entire world and from the Middle East, Arab states, even Syria, uh, probably the most staunchly anti-American country well, along with maybe Libya and Iraq, but the most anti-American countries. The Syrians understand that uh, the Soviet Union is heading out, which it really does a few months later. And so they say this is time to um, make nice to the United States. There's only one country in the region that the U.S. asks to, not just asks, but really puts the screws on, to stay out of the coalition, to stay out of the fighting, it happens to be the only country that has capabilities uh, to really help the United States because the U.S. wanted the Arab countries to show their flag but not to fight, not to get involved at all. And, of course, the country that it didn't want to get involved was Israel because that would have disrupted the coalition. So now fast forward three decades where we are today and a coalition, an arrangement, whatever term you want to use, is in the process of evolving between Israel and the same Arab states. Okay, back to you, Danny. Yes, and uh, pretty much um, this may uh, take us to the uh, maybe the seventh or the the latest uh, turning point, but before that, uh, let's just finish the former one, the the sixth one that we were talking uh, uh, following the the first uh, Gulf War. Um, also, uh, there is a, a another point uh, in history which also made a big difference, and that was 9-11. 9-11, the collapse uh, of the 15 uh, terrorists um, of Al-Qaeda into the World Trade Center, the uh, most horrendous and um, largest terror uh, attack in history almost 3,000 American dead and and many uh, injured. And this uh, maybe uh, marks the shift, the strategic shift where uh, for the United States, uh, it's not the Soviet Union, the defunct Soviet Union, which is the main uh, rival or even enemy, but it is fundamental um, and radical Islam. Uh, Al-Qaeda, which then morphed to to ISIS and to... uh, many other uh, radical uh, organizations. And here, Israel again offers its uh, vast and and wealth uh, um, knowledge in uh, counterterrorism. Unfortunately, Israel is the country which was uh, attacked more than any other country during its uh, history uh, under, uh, you know, 
Palestinian terror and other uh, terror. So here we could really offer the Americans uh, tactical advice and, um, and intelligence, of course, uh, sharing, which also uh, uh, were um, getting uh, closer. And uh, I would say in this, at this point, where we talked about uh, a joint um, build-up of missile defense, not yet uh, cyber security, which comes a little bit later, but in terms of missile defense, if we uh, say, you know, where we are, it was, of course, the Arrow, uh, the Iron Dome, the David Sling, and uh, everything, you know, it is kind of almost a complete uh, and uh, layered uh, defense uh, against any distance and sizes of incoming ballistic uh, missiles. One more thing that I think is important at this uh, stage is that for the first time, the United States is inviting Israel for the build-up of the um, state-of-the-art strategic uh, fighter, the JSF, the Joint Strike Fighter. Uh, we F-35. The F-35 of today. And Israel was part and parcel of the group that designed, planned, and even contributed to uh, to this, um, especially when it comes to av- avionics and uh, some uh, some um, uh, computer uh, technology, including the helmet for the pilot, which is uh, a critical component. A critical component, yeah. I think uh, you're absolutely right that 9-11 is a critical point, and it's part of a change that happened in the 90s because the Soviet Union, of course, disappears in uh, 91, and what had been the basis for the growing alliance between the U.S. and Israel, uh, at least the American basis, which is the desire to uh, minimize Soviet influence in the region, well, now there's no Soviet Union. So what's the strategic basis for the relationship? And it turns out that starting in the early 90s, and 9-11 is the critical point, but starting from the early 90s, as Danny is saying, um, radical Islam, or what I call the nexus between uh, Islamic fundamentalism, WMD, and terrorism, now become the primary threat to American national security. It's no longer the Soviet Union. This is the threat. And it manifests itself big time with 9-11. So instead of being in a situation that we could have been where after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there is less of a commonality of interests, there is now actually an even closer one. And the American threat perception in the 90s and early 2000s and the Israeli threat perception become remarkably close, especially if you consider that one is a global superpower and the other is a local actor. But in any event, this is the era of the 90s where the relationship really becomes uh, institutionalized, where Israel can now pretty much be assured that the U.S. will supply, within reason, of course, but pretty sure any, any kind of well, weapon system that it needs. The relationship, because it's institutionalized, can now ride out policy differences over other issues. And we see maybe this era, maybe it reaches its apex with the 2014 signing of the U.S.-Israel Strategic 
Partnership Act. Uh, remember, I said before that being an MNNA, a major non-NATO ally, was no longer such a big deal. And so Congress decides in 2014 to give the bilateral relationship a new definition. And here I think we come to the seventh turning point and the final one. Danny, why don't you talk about that? Yes, and again, as um, development uh, continue uh, with the sharp turns uh, here in history and especially in the Middle East, uh, we see now that um, the uh, major threat now to American interests and to also to Israel is uh, Iran. Iran uh, is also uh, driving the Gulf countries, which are also threatened by Iran, uh, starting with Saudi Arabia and, of course, Bahrain, uh, the, Amer the, the Emirates, uh, with the other Sunni countries, Jordan, of course, and Egypt, uh, which have long um, peace uh, agreements uh, with Israel, but the other countries also come closer with Israel under American, um, I would say, incentives. And here is the seven uh, turning point where Israel has become or is integrated into the central command of the United States in the region, uh, which sits in Qatar, in the, in the Gulf. Until now, uh, we were part or we uh, were, um, I would say, we were... Um, uh, related to the UCOM, which European is the European command. command. And this was uh, especially since the European, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Americans did not want to disrupt and to keep the seamless operation between them and the Arab countries and not having Israel as part of it. For those who aren't familiar with the way the U.S. does it, the... Department of Defense divides up the world into a number of regional commands. So there's a Northern Command, which is North America. There's a South, um, South American Command, Africa Command, Pacific Command. And the command responsible for the Middle East is CENTCOM, the Central Command. Right. And of course, they also have this uh, Strategic Command, uh, which is uh, located uh, very, very deep uh, in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, I all... <laughs> Have you been there? Have you seen uh, it? Yes, 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 but not all the way down, only to a certain level, you know, because, you know, you need to have a very special uh, clearance. security clearance, yeah. uh, of course, and non-Americans, uh, there are some areas which are, of course, are uh, off bounds, off, uh, bounds for, for non-Americans. Uh, in any case, uh, so today, uh, Israel is part of uh, CENTCOM, uh, and we have seen also joint exercises between CENTCOM American forces, Israeli, uh, Bahrainians, Moroccans, um, Emirates, and um, and this is uh, also a result of the Abram Accord, Abram Accords, uh, which um, I must to say here uh, all the uh, the glory and uh, the kudos go to uh, President Trump. It's true. Uh, he is very controversial and uh, probably rightly so. But when it comes to American policy in the Middle East, he has done some major things. And uh, the, I, I would say the most important thing strategically is the Abram Accords where he impressed upon the Arab countries. And again, it wasn't very hard to impress it upon them because they uh, feared 
the threat from Iran. So it made sense for them to join force with Israel um, uh, militarily, but also e economically, uh, politically. Now we have uh, uh, embassies and we have uh, full normalization and full peace with the Emirates and with uh, Bahrain and with Morocco as well. And um, that, was, of course, um, lays the ground for uh, continued cooperation with these countries and the latest, uh, uh, I would say, development. It may be called a baby step, but uh, also as a result of the Biden visit is uh, Israeli overflights uh, uh, on Saudi airspace whereby Israeli uh, airliners can now fly directly over Saudi airspace to the east, which will uh, really uh, bring down the uh, costs for air tickets, for cargo, which is also being shipped uh, both ways. And the next step would be direct flights between Ben Gurion Airport and uh, Riyadh Airport, and this is the next step. And, um, and today it's quite uh, natural to see Israel and the United States uh, as very, very close strategic uh, uh, partners who plan together, who consult, who um, also act together, military exercises with other actors uh, in the region. And the most important thing is that uh, we do have the same vision to the region with the United States, which is also based on the shared values between our countries, which uh, I'm sure, Chuck, we will discuss quite at length in our next podcast. In the next uh, podcast, absolutely. Uh, I think just to add one sentence to what you were saying about the Abraham Accords, I think, uh, first of all, as you were saying, President Trump does deserve uh, great credit for this, and I'm not normally one to give him credit for too many things, but here he truly, I believe, trans helped transform the Middle East. And yes, it's true that what really led to this was the shared Arab and or Gulf and Israeli fear of the Iranians, and it was the Gulf countries' desire to gain access to Israeli technology and the Israeli economy. But the fact is, uh, Trump really pushed for this, put American prestige, put American muscle behind it, and he does fully deserve credit for that. I believe that it has transformed the region, and when we see uh, there's all this talk about. Israeli and Arab uh, security cooperation today, a regional air defense system, and some people have even gone too far and are talking about an alliance. Uh, we're not there yet, but this really is one of the most important developments that happened uh, in the history of the Arab-Israeli relationship, which was until now an Arab-Israeli conflict. Okay, uh, next time, I think we will talk about the sources of this relationship. Um, what they are, how they affect the relationship today. See you then. Okay, looking forward. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the IDDF podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute, hosted by Chuck Freilich, featuring Danny Ayalon. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast at wherever it is that you download your podcasts from, and please consider making a tax-deductible donation to our work via our website at www.miriaminstitute.org. I want to invite you to share this podcast with your friends and family 
and to submit your questions and comments, which you can send directly to Chuck and Danny via their email address at iddf at miriaminstitute.org. Thank you again for your time and for your attention, and we look forward to the next time we meet here at the Miriam Institute. Israel's future in Israel's hands.